an oracle concerning Nineveh, the book of the vision of Nahum the Akalshite. The Lord is a jealous and avenging God. The Lord takes vengeance and is filled with wrath. The Lord takes vengeance on his foes and maintains his wrath against his enemies. The Lord is slow to anger and great in power. The Lord will not leave the guilty unpunished. His way is in the whirlwind and the storm, and clouds are the dust of his feet. He rebukes the sea and dries it up. He makes all the rivers run dry, Bashan and Carmel wither, and the blossoms of Lebanon fade. The mountains quake before him, and the hills melt away. The earth trembles at his presence, the world and all who live in it. Who can withstand his indignation? Who can endure his fierce anger? His wrath is poured out like fire. The rocks are shattered before him. The Lord is good, a refuge in times of trouble. He cares for those who trust in him, but with an overwhelming flood, he will make an end of Nineveh. He will pursue his foes into darkness. Whatever they plot against the Lord, he will bring to an end. Trouble will not come a second time. They will be entangled among thorns and drunk from their wine. They will be consumed like dry stubble. From you, O Nineveh, has one come forth who plots evil against the Lord and counsels wickedness. This is what the Lord says. Although you have allies and are numerous, you will be cut off and pass away. Although I have afflicted you, O Judah, I will afflict you no more. Now I will break their yoke from your neck and tear your shackles away. The Lord has given a command concerning you, Nineveh. You will have no descendants to bear your name. I will destroy the carved images and cast idols that are in the temple of your gods. I will prepare your grave for you are vile. Look, there on the mountains, the feet of one who brings good news, who proclaims peace. Celebrate your festivals, old Judah, and fulfil your vows. No more will the wicked invade you. They will be completely destroyed. Thanks, Roscoe. Good job. It's not an easy reading, uh, not an easy passage. So please keep your Bibles open. Um, There's a lot of things in there. Some things are hard. Some things are a bit confusing. Um, And if you can have it available and in front of you, you'll be well served as we work our way through it this morning. Uh, It probably won't surprise you to find this out. Um, but I loathe icebreaker games. Um, I'm guessing I'm not the only person. Uh, You know what it's like, you go to a conference or a training day or a camp uh, and what happens, they get you together and say, let's play some get-to-know-each-other games and you cringe. Do we have to? Can we just use the name tags? That's what they're there for. But you know the classic? Uh, It's kind of the laziest one. Um, It's give two words to describe yourself. Maybe contrasting words, you're going to mix it up, do something a bit funky. Uh, and you, you know, when, that's, when you're told that's what we're going to do, you, you feel that internal panic. Well, what do I say about myself? It has to be interesting. You can't just say the same thing as everyone else. Uh, it has to be a good answer. What do you say? 
Uh, I'm vivacious. I don't know. I, I'm not vivacious. I just, like, I just like that word. It's a cool word. Energetic. I'm outdoorsy. I'm, I don't know. If I'm honest, I'm feeling really awkward right now and I don't want to do this. You know the feeling. All right. It's hard for us. What if you were to do it for God? What if you were to do the icebreaker game for God uh, and give two words to describe him? Maybe you've had this sort of conversation before. Probably someone hasn't asked you, give me two words to describe God. But maybe someone said, what's God like? Or what's your God like? Um, What's he all about? What words would you use? Maybe loving. Maybe good. You might use the word father or powerful or grace perhaps. There's a whole range of words we might use, isn't there? And they're all good. They're all very true. What about jealous? What about avenging? What about wrathful? (laughs) Feels a bit awkward, doesn't it? That makes us feel a bit uncomfortable. Maybe it's even just a little bit distasteful. Is God really like that? But that's just what we read, isn't it? That's how God's described here. It's very tempting for us to write that off, isn't it? So, well, that's just Old Testament God. Uh, New Testament God is much nicer. You'll like him a lot better. Uh, as if God, you know, was been on this great before and after on this cosmic self-improvement plan. But the Bible doesn't let us do that. The Bible says God is the same yesterday, today, forever. Uh, and in fact, if you look in the New Testament, he's even called an avenger there as well. Um, have a look in Romans 12 later if you like. So what do we do? What do we do with this picture of God which is so difficult, uh, so confronting? Well, we're going to grapple with it. We're going to grapple with it. We're going to hopefully try and come to understand it. And hopefully we're going to find out that these words, even though they seem a bit embarrassing, actually speak to us very good and important news that we need. That's our goal this morning. Certainly how Nahum sees these words. Uh, We don't know much about Nahum. Um, We know he's from Elkosh, but we don't actually know where that is. Uh, There's nothing else written about it. We know that his name means uh, approximately comfort um, and that kind of fits the message that that he's come to bring. Because even though Nahum writes uh, about Nineveh, which is representative of the nation of Assyria, uh, even though he writes about Nineveh, he's writing to Judah, to God's people. Nineveh never received this letter. This was designed intentionally for God's people living in Judah. Um, If you were here last uh, year, you might remember we looked at Jonah. Uh, He also spoke about Nineveh. He actually went there. But his message, his story was preserved again for Judah, for God's people. Now Nahum, a hundred years or so later, uh, also speaks about Nineveh, but to Judah again. And it's a very different message, a very different story to the book of Jonah. Now if you were a Judean in these days, uh, these were not happy days. Uh, We're talking roughly 650, 630 BC. This was a precarious time if you were a Judean, an uncertain time. Um, Only 70 to 80 years beforehand, the great nation of Assyria, this cruel and brutal world power, had swooped down and destroyed Israel. Uh, Israel were the ten northern tribes 
of God's people, estranged from Judah, the two southern tribes of God's people, and they were gone. Israel was wiped out. All of their cities were currently rubble. Uh, All of their people had been either slaughtered or deported. Uh, And new people from all over the world, strangers and foreigners, had been settled into that land. And the threat of Assyria was still all around. Uh, Their power was was just unthinkable. It was was incomparable. Um, Only a couple of years before Nahum was written, uh, Assyria had gone down to Egypt and wiped out the great city of Thebes. Um, It was thought impossible that that could ever happen. It was too remote, it was too well defended, it was thought that no one could ever touch it. And yet in all their power, Assyria had somehow done it and wiped out this city and the whole world was shocked. The the, the ripples uh, of that spread throughout the world. Now at this time, uh, Judah, God's people, including the capital, city of Jerusalem, were allied with Assyria. Um, They were kind of part of the Assyrian Commonwealth as a vassal uh, state under them, under their power. And the king of God's people, the king, uh, probably Manasseh, was a bad king and a big Assyrian fan. Uh, He spread their influence everywhere, he spread their religion everywhere and was a chief proponent of it. So they were big fans. But that relationship was still very uneasy. Uh, It's kind of like having a Rottweiler as a pet. Yeah, it might keep you safe, but it might also turn around and bite you. And that was a threat for Judah here. It was especially dangerous times if you were a faithful follower of God, of the God of uh, Israel, of Yahweh, because pagan worship was the order of the day. Uh, To speak out against that would have been dangerous Uh, It would have been politically incorrect even to speak about Assyrian influence, possibly even treason. A dangerous time. And it could be that that's why Nahum is called a book there. I don't know if you notice that in verse um, 1, we're told that this is the book of the vision of Nahum. Out of all the prophets, Nahum is the only one referred to as a book. Uh, And it seems to imply that his message was written, um, not necessarily preached, and perhaps even spread then, kind of like a tract, as contraband, as something to you know, get away from the authorities. This is dangerous stuff if you're in Judah. But remember, Nahum is about comfort. Comfort that is quite curiously packaged. Look at verse 2 uh, to the first half of verse 3 again. The Lord is a jealous and avenging God. The Lord takes vengeance and is filled with wrath. The Lord takes vengeance on his foes and maintains his wrath against his enemies. The Lord is slow to anger and great in power. The Lord will not leave the guilty unpunished. Uh, It's explosive stuff, isn't it? Uh, Nahum's basically saying, remember who God is. Remember who God is. Sure, uh, his land is overrun, his worship is scorned and suppressed, his people are dominated, but he is jealous. He is avenging. He is wrathful. You think, well, that's all well and good, God, but remember, Assyria is in control at the moment. What's going on? You're so jealous, so vengeful. Where are you? Well, have a look at the second half of verse 3. His way is in the whirlwind and the storm, and clouds are the dust of his feet. 
He rebukes the sea and dries it up. He makes all the rivers run dry. Bashan and Carmel wither and the blossoms of Lebanon fade. The mountains quake before him and the hills melt away. The earth trembles at his presence, the world and all who live in it. Who can withstand his indignation? Who can endure his fierce anger? His wrath is poured out like fire. The rocks are shattered before him. Now, I don't know if you've ever seen, most nature documentaries seem to have this scene. It's you know, an open valley or an open desert and they show a time lapse or fast forward of, of a huge storm breaking in upon it. That's the picture that, that, that Nahum's painting here. It is God coming as a storm, bursting upon the land. Uh, the whirlwinds are his heralds. The, the rivers and the seas just vanish before him. Um, he's picking up on an idea here that the Assyrians only used to invade uh, in the right season when the, land, uh, the rivers had dried up enough that they could cross them. He's saying God doesn't need to wait for that. The, the, the rivers just disappear before he comes. The whole of the earth quakes. The, the lushest of places, Bashan and Carmel and Lebanon, they wither before his fury. Now it's like saying it, it dries up on the west coast. You know, you can imagine the, 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 this, this dryness, this, this uh, wrath coming. Who can stand before him? Who can face up to such a storm? Who can face up to such a God? No one. No one can. So what do we do with the picture? What do we do with this picture of this awesomely powerful God, wrathful and terrible and jealous and avengeful? How do do we deal with that? Well, the first thing we have to do is note exactly how he's described. Just glance back over verses 2 and 3. Uh, You'll see there in the middle of verse 2 he is filled with wrath. It's a tricky thing to translate. It's literally uh, Lord of wrath. Uh, We're being told he's not out of control here. This is not God filled with rage and just acting reactionarily. He's he's angry, yes, but he's mastered his anger. He's he's in control here still. We're told uh, in verse 3 he's slow to anger. Um, He's not snapping back every time he's hurt. You don't have to walk on eggshells around God. His anger is slow to rouse. He's even patient in his anger. That gives security, but it also gives weight to it, doesn't it? I mean, who do you fear? Do you fear the yappy dog that barks at every shadow? Of course not. You, you, You fear the lion who, though slow to be roused, is more terrible in his anger. That's the picture of God here. And in verse 3, he will not leave the guilty unpunished. And the implication, he'll also not punish the innocent. Uh, God is just. Yes, he is jealous. Yes, he is avenging. We need to keep that in mind. But we need to hold that intention with the fact that he's also patient. He's also just. That he's also right in his wrath and in his vengeance. Uh, Even if you've not seen any of them, you're probably aware of the Avengers movies. Um, There's only about 200 of them. Uh, And they cover everyone you've ever heard of from Iron Man, Captain America, Hulk, so on and so forth. They all roughly follow the same pattern. The good guys win in the end. Uh, But there's another theme, a really interesting theme that, that runs through all of them, that all of these characters, all of these heroes of incredible power and capability are wrestling with 
and that is wrestling with their responsibility and their role as Avengers. Uh, and the questions come up in different forms and different ways in almost every movie. You know, are we doing the right thing? Are we on the right side? Um, who do we work for? Who do we listen to? Uh, are we being manipulated? Are we using our power well? Are we using it rightly? What do we do about all the collateral damage when we act? Uh, every movie, they're, they're asking these questions. Are we doing the right thing? We're, we're avenging, we're protecting humanity, but are we doing it right? How do we use that power? Well, Nahum's telling us here that God is the ultimate avenger and there is no question that can be asked of him. Not only is he unmatched in power, but he is unmatched in justice, unmatched in righteousness. He is never wrong, he is never at fault. His avenging, though terrible and awful, is good and right. And we're told he is jealous. He is jealous for humanity. Now, for people, we, we always use that word in a negative sense. You know, don't be jealous, don't be jealous of other people, don't be uh, like that. It's a, it's a bad thing. But for God, it's not. Remember, God's not like us. The word jealous is, is a relational word here, isn't it? Uh, you might remember if you've read your Old Testament, if you're familiar with it, uh, years before Nahum was written, hundreds of years before, God had made a covenant with his people, uh, a covenant with the people of Israel. He had said to them, he had promised to them, I'm going to be your God and you're going to be my people. He said to them, I'm going to be like a husband to you. I'm going to care for you. I'm going to give to you. I'm going to love you and protect you. I'm going to be exclusively 100% faithful to you and you will be exclusively mine. And God said, I'll suffer no rivals. But now, fast forward to Nahum's day, there was a rival. Assyria had come in and Assyria had usurped God's position. Uh, they demanded the honour and respect of the God's people of Judah that only God deserved. They demanded their loyalty and their service. Uh, Assyria came and ruled in God's place, said, we're in charge now, we're going to look after you. And so God's jealous. God's jealous, rightly so. What would you expect? And what would you expect he would do? Uh, say for a second, say a, a husband catches their wife uh, cheating or in the midst of an affair. You would expect in that situation the reaction to be strong, wouldn't, it? wouldn't you? Uh, you would expect anger, you would expect grief, you would expect raw emotion, a, 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 a huge reaction. And if there was no reaction, what would you think? You might think, well, maybe he was actually not faithful himself. Therefore, he doesn't care. Maybe you think, well, he actually doesn't clearly care for that relationship. Maybe he doesn't even love his partner. Whatever you think, you would see it as a bad sign for that relationship, wouldn't you? If there was no emotion around that. And that's what Nahum's showing us here. He's saying this jealousy of God, it's not petty, it's not selfish, it's not self-centred, it's a sign of his deep care. It's a sign of how great his love and its passion is for his people. He cares, he loves them. And the way he expresses that, his vengeance and wrath and these threats, is simply a picture of the intensity of his desire for his people and that they would be restored to him. 
Naomi is saying, God is jealous for you and he is coming to get you back. Here's a question though. Do God's people deserve it? Are they worthy of his love? Are they in any way worthy of this sort of jealousy? The answer is no. Uh, See, it's not just that Assyria had come in and conquered the nation and and taken control by force. No, Assyria, uh, the the people had given themselves to Assyria. Assyria had come knocking uh, and, and God's people hadn't said, go away, you know, we're gods, we belong to him, we don't need you. They'd actually said, come right in, it's all yours. Take what you will, we're yours now. They didn't deserve a faithful God, they'd given themselves away. They weren't a faithful people. But they were God's precious and special and beloved people. And his jealousy for them is greater than their unfaithfulness to him. And so he would act. So he promises to act here. And that's why God's jealousy is still a good news for humanity and for us as well. Because we are no less unfaithful than Judah were. We too denied God's rule. Uh, We too denied his care and his love and his protection. Whether conscious decision or unconscious, we have given ourselves to other things. And we are not lived for him. We weren't forced into this. It was a choice that we've made. See, God has every right to come and uh, unleash this wrath against us. I mean, we weren't even his covenant people. He should have come like this towards us. The full force of his jealous anger, that's what we deserved for rejecting him. But he didn't. He chose to unleash his jealousy by coming to us in love. Here's what Romans 5, 8 says. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. What does that mean for us? Well, Paul goes on. Since we have now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? For if when we were God's enemies we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more having been reconciled shall we be saved through his life? See, instead of unleashing the wrath of his jealousy on us, he unleashed it on his faithful son. And so in that moment his wrath was satisfied, his jealous love was shown and we were rescued. God is jealous for you. And that he has sent Jesus to this world is proof that he would go that far to win you back. How is all that yours? Well, it's there for us in verse 7 and 8. The Lord is good, a refuge in times of trouble. He cares for those who trust in him. But with an overwhelming flood, he will make an end. He will pursue his foes into darkness. 
Um, if you've got a Bible, you might notice Nineveh's in brackets there. The, the names aren't through this book, uh, besides one or two spots. Uh, Nahum's saying this is true of God in all time, not just for now. God is good, God is safe, he's a refuge for those who trust him. For those who trust him are safe. And his jealousy saves them and protects them. That jealousy would pursue and it would consume uh, Nineveh. A hundred years ago, Jonah came to Nineveh. He shared the message of mercy. They responded, they they repented and came back to God and, and received mercy. But in that time since, they have rejected. They've turned away again and now the time of mercy is gone and the time of wrath is coming. Today is still the time of mercy. It is still a time to repent, to return and to receive that grace of God. Today, but not forever. Today God's jealousy wins back. One day God's jealousy will consume. So heed that jealous and avenging love. Trust it in order that it be not to you a threat but instead your sure and safety and refuge. Because God's jealousy means the liberation of his people. And Nahum is announcing Nineveh's time is up. It's come. The day is here. Look at verse 9 through 11. Whatever they plot against the Lord, he will bring to an end. Trouble will not come a second time. They will be entangled among thorns and drunk from their wine. They will be consumed like dry stubble. From you has one come forth who plots evil against the Lord and counsels wickedness. God's saying, the day's come. The end of the line is here. All your plots, they're going to end. They're going to come to nothing. Uh, you're going to be smashed. You're never going to rise again. Uh, you're going to be utterly consumed like, like a, a bush is overcome by thorns, like a drink is consumed by a drunkard, like stubble is, is consumed by flames. There's going to be nothing left of you. This is it. In verse 11, uh, the one who counsels wickedness is, is literally the worthless counsellor. God's saying, even your wisest plans, even your best ideas, they're going to fall. They're going to end. They're going to, they're going to be nothing. And God's declaring this even though it looks so remarkably unlikely. Look at verses 12 through 14. This is what the Lord says, Although they have allies and are numerous, they will be cut off and pass away. Although I have afflicted you, I will afflict you no more. Now I will break their yoke from your neck and tear your shackles away. The Lord has given a command concerning you. You will have no descendants to bear your name. I will destroy the carved images and cast idols that are in the temple of your gods. I will prepare your grave, for you are vile. Remember the time that God's writing this, that God's speaking this. Nineveh, Assyria, they're at the height of their powers. They are the world superpower. There is no one like them. Their dominance is across the world. Uh, Even the the cities that are thought untouchable have been utterly destroyed by them. They're the world bully. They're the big kid on the block. No one can touch them. And all of that means nothing because God is coming against them. 
uh, the yoke, the bonds that they've placed on God's people, heavy and terrible, uh, they're going to be broken. And of Assyria, of its king, there's not even going to be a memory will endure. Um, the Assyrian king of the time, Ashurbanipal, is a great name if you're ever thinking of naming your kids, uh, Ashurbanipal, the greatest king they ever had, uh, he, he said to his son, I'm the greatest king this nation's ever had, write my name everywhere. Anything you do, everything you build, write it everywhere. Everyone will know how great I am uh, and will honour me as I deserve. God's saying, not going to happen. Your line is over. Your rule is at an end. Even your images are going to be broken and forgotten. And in fact, your end is going to be so inglorious, you're not going to be buried in honour, you're not going to have a state funeral. I'm going to have to dig you a shallow grave because no one else will. This is how complete your end is. Humanly speaking, Assyria is unstoppable. God speaking in his jealousy, they are not even a speed bump. Uh, I'm not old enough to remember Desert Storm 1, um, but I'm told it went like Desert Storm 2, which I do remember. Uh, I don't know if you remember that. Do you remember the the, the warmongering and the the great build-up and the rhetoric and the uncertainty that went along with it, you know, as the, the, the states and the Iraqis kind of faced off. There was, uh, what's going to happen? How's this going to play out? What's, what's going to be second time round? The balance of forces didn't look great. It looked an unsure thing. Uh, and there was, you know, that uncertainty. If, if they attack, you know, what's going to happen? What about all their special weapons that they allegedly had? It didn't look good. And then it was all over just like that. Uh, the, the US and their allies attacked and the Iraqis just evaporated like a house of cards. It was done, it was over. It, it was finished in, in like a week. And that's God's promise to Assyria. You look so powerful, you look so strong, you're going to be gone. And so they were. Within 30 years of Nahum being written, Assyria was gone. Like completely gone, and well, not just reduced in size, but gone utterly, defeated, and wiped out. When God's jealousy is roused, when He promises He will act, He fulfills it, and His people are liberated. And that's true, no less. In fact, in many ways, more for us for us for whom God's jealousy has also acted. Again he conquered, again he overcame, again he liberated, not from human forces this time, but far more daunting, far more scary uh, and, and unopposable forces. Here's what he did, Colossians chapter 2. He forgave us all our sins, having cancelled the written code with its regulations that was against us and stood opposed to us, he took it away, nailing it to the cross. And having disarmed the powers and authorities, spiritual powers, spiritual authorities, uh, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. Who can beat death? I mean, many have tried, all have failed, but God did. Who can beat sin? Many uh, try, many continue to try to, to be better people, to be more uh, successful, but none have. God did though. In Jesus not only did he beat sin and death but he made a spectacle of them 
Uh, he used their own power. He used their own cross and their own death, their instruments of their own making to utterly destroy them once and for all. Now, it's, it's the, the ultimate older sibling, younger sibling move, isn't it? You know, the, the older dominates the younger so much so that the, the, the younger can't even hurt the older. The, the older uses uh, the younger's hands to hit them. You know, it's a classic. Why are you hitting yourself? Maybe that was just my family. Stop hitting yourself. It's what God does here, doesn't he? It's the ultimate humiliation. It's the ultimate display of strength. He uses sin and death's own power against himself and utterly wipes them out. And by the cross, he wins victory for his people. God liberates his people. God triumphs by the empty cross of Jesus is testimony to that very fact. Death is no more. It's been swallowed up in his life. In jealousy for you, God has acted. God has saved if you trust in him. So celebrate. Celebrate what he's done. Look at verse 15. Look there on the mountains, the, one, the, the feet of one who brings good news, who proclaims peace. Celebrate your festivals, O Judah, and fulfil your vows. No more will the wicked invade you. They will be completely destroyed. Uh, send yourself back to, to Judah's day and, and picture this scene. Um, city of Jerusalem, surrounded by hills. They see the messenger coming. Look, it's good news. The, the, Assyria's being cast down. You're at peace. So celebrate. Give yourself to God. That's a remarkable promise. And even more remarkable when you remember that when Assyria wrote, it hadn't yet happened. Assyria is still in control. And yet God says, I'm coming for you. I'm going to act. And that action is so certain that even now, celebrate as if it's already happened. Live for me now as if I've already liberated you. That day is so certainly coming. Give yourselves to me. Live for me. Live at peace. How useful is that for us as well? Yes, Jesus has won. Yes, sin and death are defeated. But we still wrestle with them, don't we? Their, their victory is not yet, uh, the victory is not yet complete. But live as if it had. Celebrate the peace we have. Uh, live as if they were completely wiped out already. You know, while, while the war is on, you might hoard your strength, you might hoard uh, your resources, but not when you've won. So why do it now? Live the victory. Hold nothing back. Give it all to God. Celebrate him and serve him. Remember we serve a jealous God. A God who is jealous for our attention and jealous for a relationship with us. So serve him exclusively. Cut all that vies for his attention and always and in everything look to him and live for him. He has been faithful to you, so live faithfully to him, undividedly for him. I mean, why give yourself to what's going to pass away? Instead, live for him whose jealous love saved you and gave you life. Don't be ashamed of God's jealousy. Celebrate it, because it means life for you. It means life for all who trust him. His jealousy means the liberation of his people. His jealousy is the sign of the depth of the passion of his love for us. 
So celebrate it and live for him. Live out the freedom and victory that he's won for you in Jesus. Even though the bonds of sin still tangle around us, cast them aside and give yourself to him. Live for the one who is jealous for you, who avenged you in Jesus, your faithful and loving God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, when we read of your jealousy and your wrath and your vengeance, uh, it can make us feel uneasy. Until that is, we realise that all of this speaks of the depth of your passion and love for your people. Father, we praise you that your jealous love uh, that consumes your enemies also saved and rescued us, undeserving and unfaithful though we were. Father, we praise you for the incredible grace that you have poured out on us in Jesus, that by his death, by your wrath landing on him, we are freed and we are saved. Father, help us to live lives that celebrate this. Help us to respond to your faithfulness by faithfully and gladly living for you and serving you above all else. We pray this in Jesus, our Saviour's name. Amen.